The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders every week, not at six. I'm Rashawn Leek, and in our virtual studio tonight with me is my fellow co-host. I am Tamrika Khtisiashvili, and Roundtable Tuesdays is when Rishan and I ask a central question, then invite folks to come on and talk about it. Tonight, we're taking stock as we near the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. So coming up, we have educator Kamal Ahmad, newly appointed assistant principal at Matheson Junior High, Utah author and activist Darlene McDonald, who sits on Salt Lake City's Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. And we're taking over rallies and resources with some special guests as well. Coming up, we'll hear from new Americans here in Utah as they share their stories. But first, as some of you may know, I'm currently teaching at a university in the city of Al-Khalil, West Bank, Palestine, and I'm also working on a project with 14 female Gaza artists and poets from the Islamic University of Gaza, which will yield a zine called Paper Boats in collaboration with Angela Brown from Slug and Craft Lake City and Adela Rahmati later this summer. So to hear the Palestinian side of what's going on right now in Gaza, I've asked Noor Al-Saqa, one of the collaborators in the zine, to join our Zoom call today. She's a film student and an artist in Gaza, and she's joining us from Gaza City. Welcome, Noor, to Radioactive. Hi. Hello, Tamika. Welcome, Hi, Noor. Everyone. Nice to have you. Noor, Thank you I for wanna, having um, me. I want to just ask you first, how are you? Um, that's a very complicated question to start with, but let's go with um, alive so far. Right. Uh, I mean, so you're in so you're in Gaza City. So for our listeners who are unfamiliar, well, I mean, first, our listeners, I hope you're all aware of everything that's going on right now. But can you describe for them our, your surroundings, the neighborhood, just for people who aren't fully versed in everything? Okay. Um, there's nothing wrong with not knowing what's happening, but there's something wrong with ignoring it every time you hear it. So if you don't know, um, you're more than welcome to um, start researching and reading, educating yourself about it. Uh, I live in Gaza, Gaza City. Um, my neighborhood is called Tel El Hawa, and it's a pretty nice neighborhood. Um, it's very calm. Um, it, it used to be a, a pretty neighborhood until um, most of the streets here are, are destroyed, unfortunately, by um, the Israeli occupation forces. Um, so far, this is the ninth day of um of the um i'm not gonna call it war because it's uh it's unfair because a war is supposed to be between two um equal um two equal forces uh, let me frame it that way um but yeah everything's been going on for now and this is the eighth day where gaza is being bombed um and leveled leveled to the ground unfortunately so i guess um yeah 
Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to add that um, the rest of our here who are um, alive, I guess, are are there by mere chance. Um, Nora, in the U.S. media, the number of rockets from Hamas get quoted all the time. This is what we hear on the media, the number of rockets, which are in thousands. And to be clear, all death on all sides matter. But can you explain to our listeners the difference between the rockets that Hamas is launching versus the rockets that Israel is using in Gaza? Um, well, uh, how can I explain this? Um, the IDF is one of the strongest armies in the world, Why, while Hamas, the... Um, is one of the armed uh, resistance um, uh, armed resistance uh, parties in Gaza here, and Gaza has been under blockade for more than fourteen years. Um, it's Gaza is basically known uh, to be called the biggest air prison in the world because it's it's blocked from uh, air from the ground. It's just like a big white prison. So um, can you imagine a force coming out of there? Like no matter how, um, of course, we're proud of our resistance. It's our full right to to resist with whatever we can, uh, we can do whatever we can create. But um, it is absolutely no, uh, it's not anywhere near um, the Israeli forces, unfortunately. And anyone who like watches the damage um, in Gaza versus the damage there is is gonna notice that. Nor for our listeners uh, at home who might not know what IDF stands for, can you can you explain that acronym? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so IDF is short for um, Israeli Defense Forces. Thank you. So I, I want to talk about like how. So I know you're an aspiring artist and filmmaker. So how did the project come to fruition with you and Tamrika and what and Paper Boats? Um, well, we were connected by a really great and inspiring person who taught me back in 2014. Her name is Hanan. Um, Hanan was the connection between Tamrika and I. And um, it's basically has been such an interesting and beautiful experience to have to just create a visual journal of um, who I think I am and uh, what is Gaza and the connection between us. Um, it's been really interesting seeing um, Gaza from 13 other perspectives that are just as mo- uh, just uh, as the same age. Okay, we're basically the same age, but um, seeing the same place with different eyes has been um, an interesting journey. Um, I, I've loved writing and um, and just quoting things and and taking pictures and going back 
to old pictures and just like creating everything that's um, finding a connection between myself and Gaza for another time in a kind of a poetic and artistic way was really um, an eye-opening experience, especially because um, I'm also an international student. I study in Turkey. So um, being away from Gaza, uh, we don't get to, I'm currently currently in Gaza, but um, I've been away for two and a half years before that. And I wasn't even able to visit my family because the borders were closed all the time. And I couldn't risk um, going back in the summer because uh, there were no guarantees that the borders would open and I would be able to catch my university. So we usually go study outside um, and know that we'll be leaving not for one semester, but for four years, if not more. Um, so as soon as I heard that the borders were open and because of the whole online situation, uh, online learning situation, I immediately uh, packed my things and was on my way home. I came here in February. Uh, the semester started mid-February and um, here we are in May. Now, uh, being away uh, and just like going back to all the pictures I took of Gaza, of our home, of the streets, of those little things and just looking um, at myself and them after all of this time was um, was really um, a bit hard, but um, I needed that experience. So I, I'm glad that um, it happened. Noor, um, I want to, before we let you go, and by, by the way, uh, the book that Noor is referring to, the zine that she's a contributing artist, is going to come out in June. So we'll have more on that on KRCL. But um, Noor, before we let you go, I want to I give you an opportunity to tell our listeners what, what do you want them to understand about your life in Gaza right now that Western media may not be covering? Um, honestly, if you ask me that question, uh, that question about eight or nine days ago, my answer would have been completely different. Um, I was very excited to go back to Gaza, especially because I made so many international friends. Um, studying out abroad. And uh, I was happy to finally go back and just start sharing stories and pictures and, and things from like live from home, uh, from my own perspective. So, and, and I've been getting lots of comments um, of people surprised that they don't see this. They don't see that, um, we get to do picnics, we go out, we, we are educated, we're, um, we're so many things that nobody is seeing. So normally I would love people to know about all the beautiful sides of Gaza, but now um, I'm afraid I, I, 
I want the whole picture to be shown, but um, I really want them to see the damage as well, like from our own perspective, because um, everything beautiful that I've been showing to my friends, for example, has now been destroyed, unfortunately, like the bookshops, the streets, um, coffee shops on the beach, like um, everything. I, I can't think of something that hasn't been destroyed. Uh, and I unfortunately cannot think of one person here who hasn't been affected by all of this, whether financially, mentally, physically. It's just um, it's just exhausting to get to experience all of that and then focus on the bright side because at this point, honestly, there there isn't much. So yeah, that's what I wanted to add. Thank you so much for that, and and I I look forward to having you back when uh when the zine rolls, and uh in June. Hopefully, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And please stay safe. Uh, of course, we'll be in touch. And uh, thank you very much. And we send our love um, and support to all the residents of Gaza. Thank you so much, you guys, for having me. Of course. Thank Bye. you for sharing, Noor. And now let's welcome to our virtual studio two new Americans who have made Utah their home as part of public speaking courses offered by the Utah Refugee Center and taught by volunteers, including Tamrika. Our two guests tonight prepared their speeches. Let's hear some clips from them. First, Nabeen Pokrel. I thought it would be easier, but you know, um, then as soon as I got into IT, as you know, English was my second language, uh, it was very hard for me to take calls. Uh, I learned so something from their documentation and their, you know, uh, like they taught me something, but I wasn't able to. Uh, but I kept trying, uh, and finally I was able to uh, talk to people, help my clients, uh, and make them understand uh, what I was doing. So, as you can see, um, that was my first uh, piece of puzzle that I had to solve. And after that, um, I started taking calls uh, and then they promoted me. Yeah, it was hard uh, at first, but I practiced every day. I uh, used to call, there's, uh, there's some app that you can practice English calling uh, friends with that. Uh, and then that's how I got practice into. And now after like a year, uh, I actually have got promoted twice already. Uh, and I recently bought a house. And that's me, actually. <laughs> that's me. And, uh, and then the, this is the reason I wanted to tell my story that uh, it was hard at the beginning. Uh, I struggled. I even decided, nearly decided to quit. But if you keep going and work hard, uh, you'll be able to reach there like I did. Nabeen Pokrel. Thank you for that share. And I, I want to start off by first telling you, uh, Nabeen, you know, when I hear when I hear stories similar to yours, it, it really I, I just get overjoyed because, I mean, for lack of a better term, you you are an example of what the American dream looks like. 
you know, overcoming adversity and, and, and just things like that. I mean, the fact that, you, you know, you recognize difficulties and then practice, practice, practice and made it your own. But can you tell our listeners a little bit about where you're from, how long you've been here and like, you know, where, where you're at in your journey? Yeah, um, I'm from Nepal. Uh, I've been here since the last five years. Um, I started working in a restaurant uh, when I came here as a cashier. Um, and then I got opportunity from refugee center to get into the class. Uh, and then now I'm working for Les Olsen company. Uh, it's an IT company. Uh, and I, I made Utah my home. Naveen, um, so your story makes it seem easy, this American dream, but I know it's not. So what is one piece of advice? And I know you talk about this in your presentation, uh, but what is that one piece of advice that you would give to other new Americans like yourself? Well, I would say you have to keep trying. Um, like a new immigrant, you know, who comes here, they don't know anything, right? Uh, they have to start from the beginning and they might uh, like quit in the middle, but I would like to tell them, uh, keep dreaming, keep trying, and you'll reach your uh, destination one day and you'll be successful here. There are a lot of opportunities in America, right? Uh, you can get into any field, you can become anything that you have never thought of, uh, like me, you know, I never thought of becoming an IT engineer when I, I was back in my country. So keep dreaming and you'll be successful. Nice. Uh, before we let you go, I, I know I know one of the things I want to know, I should say, is as you're getting acclimated to the American culture, how is, is it, how important is it to make sure you stay connected with your uh, Nepalese? Is it Nepalese? I I. I at Nepalese roots. And I'm not sure if you have children or not, but I, I'm sure that would play into it. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't have children yet, but uh, I brought my wife last year. Uh, you know, the immigration process, process was really long. I had to wait for two and a half years almost, uh, but I brought her here. Uh, I'm pretty connected to my community, uh, Nepalese community and Bhutanese community. Uh, they have helped me uh, when I need them. Uh, and they're pretty good at, you know, preserving their uh, culture, our Nepali culture. Uh, and I'm so proud of them. Naveen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you uh, for uh, being on the show, but also doing the presentation. And we'll have your full presentation available for our listeners in our notes. Uh, thank you again very much. And, I, and I, we wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My company was really proud of me when I tell them, you know, I'm going to go go to radio uh, and I'm going to make Les Olsen Company proud. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. And I I want to echo what Tamrika said. It's a pleasure having you, Naveen. And they should be proud of you for sure. And now our second presenter, Adal Awan. She's a Sudanese woman from South Sudan. She came to U.S. in the year 2000. She is a mother of five, speaks Arabic, Dinka, and English. And in her presentation, Adal talks about cultural assimilation versus cultural integration. Let's have a listen. I learned to adapt the culture. And what helped me the most was my education. 
When I went to start going to school, I started seeing a lot of different things. When I was going to school back in my country, we used to be only girls in, in the class, so we don't, they don't combine usually girls and boys together, but now things are different. So it was hard for me. I used to sit all the way in the back because boys are there, even though I was married, but I, I still do that because that's where I grow, where, where I grow up. And it was hard. And like I said before, it was hard because I don't have any freedom on schools. And I'm trying to not to force. In the beginning, it was forced on my kids to follow. But at the end, I just try to be lean. At the same time, I feel like I'm neglecting my culture and losing the hope. So what helped me the most was the communication. Because uh, kids are born here. And with my husband, is totally different. He's giving the kids freedom of speech. So he, on his side, he's from South Sudan too. But on his side, he just wants his kids to have this freedom that he never had. And he wants especially the girls have this freedom to speak up for themselves. Because he knows where, he doesn't know, we all doesn't know, we, don't, we all don't know where is the future going to lead us. You don't know where you're going to end, who you're going to marry to, which society you're going to be in one day. And that's Adal Awan. Adal, welcome to Radioactive. Um, I want to ask you if you can give an example of a situation in which your children, who, um, as you talk about them now, fully kind of American, um, in which a situation in which your children and you had a cultural clash or misunderstanding. Uh, most of the time, uh, especially on the sleepover. So sleepover is still is one of the huge problem. Because uh, in, uh, for them, it's just something normal. You can go to your friend's house and sleep over nothing wrong. But for me, I'm still holding this culture. So for me, it's huge different. Uh, I still have this fear where my kids going to sleep at. Because I grew up in the country and the culture, you don't sleep out of your own house, parents' house, until you get married. Or you're going to just one of the close, immediate relatives either sisters or brothers. So, and with my kids, because uh, they see their friends and other people in my culture, they let their, their kids go sleep over some friend's house. So this became one of the huge problem between us, even though I'm start like, uh, I'm start like letting them go to some cousin auntie house my friends' houses, but it's still, I still have this fear of holding myself back. You know, what I find so interesting is growing up, I'm, so I'm from the States, I'm from New Jersey, but mm -hmm. what you're describing is not far from my culture at all. Like, you know, my, like that is very similar to how I grew up, where, you know, mm -hmm. I, tell, well, I would tell my mom that, you know, oh, I I want to go to this person's house and that person's house. And it was pretty much the same, unless mm -hmm. it was a cousin or a family member, you know, that it just wasn't happening. So it, it's, you know, it's really enlightening to me. And I think to a lot of people to, to, to share that, you know, just because someone is from a different part of the globe 
does not mean that our cultures are so wildly different. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's something that people need to recognize. Yeah. I grew up in a very religious, very uh, conservative household. And, and so, you know, my parents are preachers. So it was something that, you know, hearing you say that and describe as one of your, you know, an opportunity, it, it struck really close to home. And, you know, and so I, the question I want to lead into is it, as you start, um, you know, taking on some more um, American cultures, like what are the the things you're learning that you kind of have to pull back on from roots that are tied to Sudan? Oh, it's uh, it's a communication and giving my kids freedom of speech because uh, where I grew up, uh, everything that the elder says is right. You cannot say no, you have to follow. Either you want it or not, you have to follow and obey. But now I'm trying just to let my kids have this kind of freedom because uh, my husband is very open-minded and he's giving the kids a freedom that we never found before when we was back. So, and it's helping my kids to come forward and face us if there is something wrong or right. And it, it, it affecting me, it hurting me, yeah, in some areas. But now I'm learning like to let them say what they want, even though I did not agree with them. I just leave it inside me and try just to make this communication be better between us and them. Adele, um, so your children kind of represent this like next generation, but I want to talk about you for a second. Do you think Mm -hmm. for you Mm -hmm. um, it's possible to be an American as well, but still strongly hold on to your cultural roots? Uh, before I'm, I'm gonna tell you I'm struggling, but right now it think like I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. So I'm holding my roots, and at the same time I'm adapting. I just adapt this new culture, and it's helping both of them. So I'm working. I'm balancing right now. It's not like no, I hear that. If there was anything from your culture that you would want your kids to for sure hold on to, like this one's not. You know, there's a lot of give and take somewhere. <laughs> But this one, there's no give. This is all take. Is there what? What would that lesson be? Okay, so the only thing that I want my kids is um, is for them like to keep uh, respecting the elders because where I come from, everybody you don't call the elder by the name. You call them auntie, uncle, even though they're not immediate family. But that's how it is. So like me, if I have my friend, they have to call it auntie. If, or uncle, you know, if you're a man or a woman, they have to give disrespect, not calling them by names. So I'm trying so hard to tell them that. And it's hard because sometimes when yeah, I have American friends, they're scared, they're like, what are you gonna do, mom? I'm like, okay. And then even me on my side too, I scared to call them auntie or uncle. I just let my kids call the name the way they want it to be uh call but i just hope my kids to keep this culture respecting the elders calling them at you know thank you so much adal and uh naveen adalawan and naveen uh Pakrel, who um are new americans and took a class together uh offered by utah refugee center in public speaking thank you both for joining us and we wish you both a uh, lot of success and happiness. Yeah, thank you both, you two. You. So, so happy for you to be able to share your stories. Love it. And, and Utah is such a better place having you Absolutely. both as its residents. 
I know. I you know what I that's one of the things I'll tell you what I love about the Utah Refugee Center. It is truly helping to make us a melting pot. Amen. And you know, I don't like using that word. I know. I, 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 I said it specifically <laughs> for you, Terrica. I think they do great work. So and I work here too, so you can come anytime. Oh, I love it. I love it. Great. So now before we move on to our panel, before we wrap up rallies and resources, our executive producer, Lara, jo uh, Lara Jones, is going to join us for a minute. That was a great takeover of rallies and resources. I love the voices that you passed the mic to, Rashawn and Tamrika. And I've got just one more mic to pass here. And it's uh, about a really interesting um, concert coming up. In June, June 20th at the Clubhouse in South Temple, We Are Resilient presents Juneteenth, a celebration of black voices. It is the third, quote unquote, war gathering in the U.S. by Shea Freedom, a musician who's been in, in Utah now for a couple of years. And I wanted to share a brief conversation and then the song Emancipation Day by Shea. Here's that conversation. War, what is that? What is a war gathering? People often look at and they're like, you know, it, it, it sounds kind of cool, but it also sounds like a little violent, right? Like, no, it's quite the contrary. I I enjoy words, and, you know, there was that song that was sung, War, what is it good for? Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. nothing. You know what I'm saying? So for me, I was like, it's, it's, a, it's an acronym. We are resilient. Um, I want to bring people together in that, fighting spirit in a beautiful way you know um in in a in a way that says our presence in itself our gathering in itself uh is a kane meaning it brings gifts you know um so i really wanted to encourage people of salt lake you know as things as the apocalypse seems to be winding down you know <laughs> bring people out and bring them together in a good way june 20th is not actually juneteenth it is june 19th however being the young fry you know this small guy here in salt lake um i thought well i don't really like to compete <laughs> unless it's in <laughs> athletics so i'm gonna do it on the solstice um, which is June 20th. It's the day after Juneteenth, so it still is Juneteenth weekend. And, you know, I'll, I'll be um, playing at the event as well. I don't like to say there's a headliner because I don't really like to, you know, um, compete with fellow artists. I just want to gather with artists that I enjoy and, and make it rock, you know, in a good way. There's also a Facebook uh, page for this, and we'll include that in the show notes. But uh, introduce this song for us. What do you want to share? I wanted to share with you a song that's actually on my website, and it's called um, Emancipation Day. Tell us a bit about this before we hit play. So this song is old. It's one of the first tracks I ever cut. I cut it in 2014 when I had just won somehow Battle of the Bands as a single artist in Fort Myers, Florida. Don't know how that worked out. <laughs> but, you know, Stranger Things have led me to right here, right now. So, um it's called Emancipation Day, and it f uh, features the voice of a previous mentor of mine, Lori Burns, founder of the Team Project, who, who, you know, I, I was raised up as a former foster youth homeless for many years, and that's how I learned to play the guitar. So I wanted to share this track because I feel like 
uh, as I've just hit 30, I'm hitting another emancipation. I'm emancipating fully from boyhood into manhood. And that includes, you know, bringing the community together, not only just around myself and around music, but around more meaningful circumstances and, and being able to actually give back. So this is called Emancipation Day. And yeah, there's just not a day that goes by that I don't give thanks for where the heck I come from in the stormy seas I was born in. Emancipation Day from Shea Freedom right here on KRCL 90.9. There is not a day that goes by that I don't remember where I came from, and I'm so blessed to have made it out, and I will spend the rest of my life doing this. If you could imagine having no hope, no parents, no family, and then coming into a home where people are willing to believe in you, willing to love you, willing to be there for you. These kids are just amazing. Children around the world starving. In your own backyards, it's alarming. Stuck between the beats of the busy to see the street struggling to breathe, struggling to dream. Hey, mister, can you spare a dime? Perhaps spare some time. I seem to have lost my way. Seems like yesterday I was just 16. He looked at me, said, What do you mean? What do you mean? You've lost your way. The 65% that need a place to stay. Welcome to Emancipation Day. I got my face barely above water, and it feels like my feet can't touch the ground. My face above the water. My feet can't touch the ground, touch the ground, and it feels like I can see the sands on the horizon every time. You are not around. I'm slowly drifting away, drifting away, wave after wave. Support for KRCL comes from the Ute Land Trust, whose mission is to help heal people, community, and the world around us. More information at utelandtrust.org. Support for KRCL comes from the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast. Filmmaker Loki Mulholland and freedom writer Luvon Brown ask questions about race and racism in America. The Uncomfortable Truth is available on all podcast streaming apps. Welcome back to Radioactive and Roundtable Tuesdays. I'm Rashawn. Coming up at 7, Democracy Now!, Vagabond Radio with Barbie at 8, Connor's Late Night Lowdown starts at 10.30, and all of our programming in the radioactive archives may be found online at krcl.org. And my name is Tamrik Ortiziashvili, and we're going to finish Roundtable Tuesday by a panel discussion with educator Kamal Ahmad, newly appointed assistant principal at Matheson Junior High, and Utah author and activist Darlene McDonald, who sits on Salt Lake City's Commission on Racial Equity in Policing. Welcome both to Radioactive. Welcome, you two. Welcome. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, Kamal, first, congratulations on the new role, brother. I love to hear it. Uh, Thank you. And with us, yeah, get it. Don't, yeah, snap them. Snap it out. And, you know, I would say with, with us talking about, you know, coming up on the on the year of the George Floyd murder and the end off with the coronavirus initial lockdowns, 
How how have you you know come all being in a school setting you know how have how have you doing how are your your teachers the, the other educators in the school and the children been? Been amazing. Um, everyone's really come together to make sure that our kids get a quality education in a safe environment, and um, that means you know following our safety protocols too. And we've done a really good job. Now I think our kids are about ready to you know, back to normal <laughs> and they're letting us know that every day. But in saying that the mask are still on, uh, we're still so being socially distant at, at um, the majority of the times, um, the times where we can like the lunch line and things like that. Um, they're within like a 10 to 10 minute period with, you know, amongst a certain group to where if we needed to quarantine still, we know who the tools. So we've been doing really well. Darlene, um, I want to invite you into the conversation. So tonight, we're kind of our general topic is like taking stock as we near this one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Do you feel like now that we have gotten a verdict, the foot has been taken off the pedal, if you will? Uh, thank you very much, um, Tamika and Rishan, for having me. It's it's an honor to share this stage with um, just some wonderful activists. Be before I answer that question, I, I would just like to say how much of a tremendous honor it was to share this stage with Noah uh, from Gaza and to bring, and also the new Americans as well. I've done some work at the um, American, at the Refugee um, Committee Center to um, actually uh, help people um, get their citizenship. So I'm familiar with the work that they do there and, and commend that 100%. But speaking to what you bring up, the irony is when the protests um, for the George Floyd murder um, last year started to occur, many of our brothers and sisters from Palestine had reached out to many of the protesters that were participating in that movement and helped them especially in how to deal with the tear gas and what to do when they are tear gas pouring milk on their eyes. So there was a collaboration and partnership and brotherhood and sisterhood between the Palestinians and also the, the people that were marching for the Black Lives Matter movement. So stand 100% with our Palestinian brothers and sisters. With that being said, has the foot been taken off the pedal? I don't think so. I, I think that, especially when it's, when I look at the work that we are doing on the commission, we are putting forth ideas and recommendations for policy changes. And then you have to present that to the powers that be and then sit back and allow them the opportunity to execute those changes. And to also allow them to keep the promises that they've made that they hear us and that they are also committed to change. It is on the protesters, it is on the activists to make sure that those promises are kept and to make sure that they continue to show up with when 
city council meets, when the legislators meet, to let them know that we are here, we understand how they derive their power, the power of the vote, and that we will definitely go to the voting booth to vote for people that can keep those promises that were made during the rallies. So I don't think that the foot has been taken off the pedal, but it is a time that we're presenting those recommendations and allow the legislators time to implement. Nice, and and thank you, Darlene. That was, I, I love that segue into how, you know, we really connected with our Palestinian brothers and sisters, because I think sometimes that it's that that struggle, that shared struggle is lost sometimes. And I'm and I'm glad you were able to bridge that. Kamal, from a from a classroom and school setting, you know, with the George Floyd case and other things that we've experienced in and loss and and murders or lynchings over the last year and so on and, and further back, you know, how how has the conversation or has there been an open an open discussion with within the school setting? for the give people a space to talk and just share their thoughts and frustrations and whatnot? Not enough, not enough. That space, um, the space that needs to be created for those conversations um, hasn't been, in, in my opinion. Um, usually what you'll get um, across the different school districts across the state, and mine is probably across the country, but I can only speak Utah. Um, is you might, if you're lucky, you might get one train. A quick training tries to jam everything up within an hour. You can't do that. It has to be continuous and you have to give the space to have the necessary discussions that need to be had. If listen to, especially the youth from the George Floyd, they were airing out their frustrations with our current school system, with our current educational system. They were very clear. We didn't listen to them before, and unfortunately, we're still not listening. We're still repeating the same things as we did before the protest, which in my opinion is a huge, huge, huge mistake that we're doing because it's only a matter of time before a similar situation happens again, and then it's gonna be back to the same, same starting block of what could we have done better? And I'm tired of hearing that work, do what's need to be done right now. Um, we need we need to make some changes with the educational system, period, especially when it comes to creating those spaces for those conversations, for staff, for students, and for the community. And then tied into the curriculum that we're teaching to where it resonates with the people who we're teaching. Kamal, with kind of to follow up what you just said with your new position, I want to bring students kind of into the conversation. And what I mean is, can you describe the student body that you uh, will be working with or you're working with and kind of share a story if you have one that you uh, have experienced working with a student or in the classroom on this specific issue? Let me see. So the school right now is about... 90% minority, uh, close to a thousand students, um, about 56 different countries represented or 50 languages. The school I'm going to move to is about half Hispanic, um, about 
40% Caucasian and then 10% just various ethnic groups mixed. Um, those conversations, our kids are aware of what happened. Um, our school is a very accepting one. Like that's what makes it unique, uh, the one currently at. Um, it's a very mixed together group, but you, you do hear it. Uh, you do see certain students with Black Lives Matter shirts. Um, you actually see certain teachers with it in the classroom. Um, but within students, they're very aware, they're very, very aware now of when they're being discriminated against, and they're very vocal about that, if that's the case. They will, they will tell you, they will straight tell you, which is, to me, a great thing that they're comfortable to do that and say that. And um, naturally, you don't want that within within your school, but at the same time, our kids need to be comfortable advocating for that when they feel like whether we agree or not, whether when they feel like that hadn't happened and they need the space to be able to air out why they feel that way and they be heard. So, and uh, that, that has happened on, on a couple of pitches. Darlene, I want to, I want to go to you. I, I want to talk about your, your role. So I know you are a commissioner on the Salt Lake city racial equity and policing commission. So that is a mouthful. So yes. what is it that that actually uh, what what is what are you actually responsible for? If you can enlighten myself and our listeners. Yes, de definitely. So for me, policy is I'm big on policy. So we broke out into many different subcommittees, um, a training subcommittee, as well as the policy and procedure um, subcommittee. And there was also a subcommittee to address um, stu students, school resource officers as well. And I joined the policy and procedures uh, subcommittee, which means that we look at the, the current policies and procedures of the Salt Lake City Police Department. And then we offer recommendations of how we can get better policing um, based on what's being done now. And then you, you look at what has happened and what has worked with other departments. You bring in experts and experienced facilitators from other cities and that have implemented some of these policies and procedures and have got them to work in their particular cities as well. So we feel like we've made some really good recommendations and will offer really good recommendations to the city and also making sure that the city is in a position to follow through and follow up on those recommendations by looking at the budget that they put forth as well. And I know there was a big thing that came out yesterday about the budget um, that I read. And also just um, connecting with some of the officers as well. And that part is really, really big because myself and, and I don't know about uh, Kamal. I'm not a police officer. I've never been in law enforcement. I know people who are in law enforcement, but myself, I've not. I've never been in law enforcement. So we've been able to have conversations with current law um, um, police officers. We've also working on pairing with one on one with fellow officers as well, so that we can get perspective and understanding from each other. Mm -hmm. Because needless to say, there is a lot of apprehension from police, from the police and police officers about what we're doing mm -hmm. and why we're here. And 
one of the things that we have stressed from the beginning, and, 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 and I also say this, I'm speaking from myself, I cannot speak for everyone, that I am not anti-police, and most of the people who are on the commission are not anti-police. We recognize the need for law enforcement and we support law enforcement. We also know that we can do better and we must do better. And that's the position from where we come from and where we want to go forward to make sure that we don't have the summer of protests of 2020 happening again. So state lawmakers wanted to have critical race theory on the special session agenda this week, but Governor Cox said no. Uh, just a note in there, Governor Cox also tweeted yesterday full support of Israel without mentioning anything on Palestine. But for you two, um, I want to uh, maybe hear from both of you, what are your what is your take on CRT, on critical race theory, and the conversation and reporting around it? And maybe we can start with you, Darlene. Um, go ahead. Do you have enough time for this? Let me get comfortable. <laughs> oh my gosh. The disinformation about critical race theory has completely freaked out our political right wing coming from right wing media about what it is and isn't. It is complete disinformation by people who have no idea what critical race theory is. What critical race theory is, is to look at current laws and look at law. It is taught by scholars, it is taught on a collegiate level by people who know a lot more than I do, how laws have impacted, how racism has have impacted laws to, to facilitate and sustain systemic racism within our institutions. That is basically what criti critical race theory is it is not a static thing is it's not it's something that you can't say okay we're going to put it in this bubble and this is exactly what it is it is a framework to study legally how racism and racist policies have come forward into today so we look at that from a standpoint one of the examples i like to use is interest rates on mortgages and car loans and things like that. There have been numerous, numerous of studies. So I'm not just talking off the top of my head. You can look this up. There have been numerous studies that have shown that when Black and African-American people have received car loans or mortgages, they are charged at a higher interest rate than their white counterparts. This impacts personal wealth of Black and African-American people. This is one of the things that is that it can get studied by critical race theories, by legal scholars, and how the financial institution and the systemic racism within the financial institution doesn't leave racism in the past. That is what criti critical race theory does in, in a nutshell. 
but it is taught by people who have been doing this work for decades, for decades. This started in the 1970s, this work. And for some reason, it has become this huge political time bomb for some reason, a talking point, but it become that it has become that talking point because if many of you, and I'm sure everyone here has recalled, last year before leaving office, Donald Trump completely banned diversity training on a federal level because he called it un-American and divisive. So that has carried over into, they're trying to teach anti-whiteness basically and tying it into Marxism and anti-communism as well. So it's a broader thing as mm -hmm. to what they're actually doing that has nothing to do with critical race theory as to what it actually is. So, yeah. <laughs> Kamal, as a as an educator, give us your take on CRT and how it could be integrated into a K through twelve classroom. Uh, one, I just like to say, uh, I think that's the next job of yeah. explaining, explaining absolutely, that. and how it can be integrated. I think it. Well, I just want to build on something Darlene said. Oh yeah, please, uh, please, by all means. That is not an accident of how the how this is being portrayed. I mean. And to me, historically, it makes sense because it's the same battle historically we're dividing. And it's always education, educational standpoint. You always want to limit the edu or these certain groups always want to limit the education in order to further their agenda within their, their given population. To me, this only betters our country. Why would you not want to continue education, continue studying, continue the research? That's what it's about. That's what we promote with all our kids from K through 12, through college, through grad school, et cetera. Why would we not take the same concept and carry on with it? That's what we teach our students in school, to examine these things, to look at to critique them. That's how we get them better. That's how we get concept better. And the critical race is no different from that standpoint. We need to embrace it. We need to, to look at it from all ends. We need to continue the research with it. Um, and we need to continue studying it and, 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 and the practices that go along with it. Um, to, to limit something from an education standpoint, that's American. And to build on something else, um, the statement of Governor Cox yesterday was uh, uh, for a leader who personally I thought was doing a, a good job in office. I'm just telling, thought he was doing a good job in office. To make a statement like that um, worries me. A one side statement, it worries me, not just as a Muslim American, it worries me as an African American, as an African American. Um, that statement to me comes across as like the only thing I saw, and I'm being very upfront with you. When I read that, it's like my, my I, I went back to a time where I felt like um, segregation was still happening here. And, and that and that's how that came across to me. Like, like that's a very segregationist statement. And I, and I want to know, does he truly represent each and every person in Utah? Does he truly care about each and every person in Utah? Not just Utah, the world. A statement like that's powerful, man. Mm -hmm. You cannot just make them some, some, irresponsible statement like that and not expect it to have any consequences. People are dying. 
you're a leader. Your job is to lead and be the example and not be a follower. Right now, your job isn't to be a Republican in, in office. It's to be the governor of the state of Utah. It is to be an example of our country. Kamal and Darlene, we're almost out of time. But before we let you go, um, we want to ask you, May 25th is the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. What's your hopes? And maybe, Kamal, you can uh, briefly begin and then hear from Darlene as well. What, what are your hopes and fears about where we are and where we need to go? Hopes that we're having the necessary conversations to continue making our country a better place. And we have to have hard conversations in order to do that. We have to discuss how we got here. And that's our battle, discussing how we got here. And then the similar situation than what you're seeing overseas right now in that situation. No one wants to discuss how we got here. But fears is limiting our ability to be able to have those discussions. And... I'll do everything within my power and hope everyone else will to make sure that we're able to have the space to have the discussions to make this a better society for all people. I just want to say how much I appreciate the words of wisdom from um, Kamal. I, I appreciate the passion that he expressed about the, the, the statement that was put out by the governor. I felt it as well. Thank you very much for speaking honestly and truthfully and truth to power to that. My hope is that we can continue to have this conversation and speak truthfully and truth to power about race issues, racism in America and in the world as well, because we are not standing in this alone as evident by what's happening to our Palestinian brothers and sisters in the statement that was put forth. So it just, you hit it. I mean, you just nailed it with that. My, my fear is that we go silent into the night and allow the disinformation and the exhaustion, because this work is exhausting, and allow the exhaustion to creep in and silence the necessary voices that needs to carry the day. We, we have to hold each other up. We have to, and we have to forge forward because there is a world out there that needs changing. And it's gonna take our young people and a few collective minds and bodies coming together to make those changes. And we have to lock arms across the sea with everyone, and I'm looking at my Palestinian brothers and sisters, we're locking arms with you and we're standing with you because there's change, necessary change that needs to be made and the truth needs to be told. That is what my hope is for the future as we go forward, the work is not done. Thank you so much, Kamal. Thank you so much, Darlene. We appreciate having your voices and your perspectives with thank us today. you so much. Um, I echo Rishan's thank you for coming on the show. And we hope to have you soon again on the show and continue these conversations. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. And whew, Tamrika, that's our show. It was a it was good. It was a heavy one, though, lady. What, what did you think? Uh, I, 
you know, I, I, I loved it. I, you know, it's, it, it's hard, you know, it, it, it's hard when you, when you read, and I'm just going to be candid. I'm going to speak for me. When you read reckless statements like that by the, you know, the leader of the state, you know, saying that they stand with, with Israel. And then you hear from, you know, uh, boots on the ground from Noor about what's really going on. And I think there's a, there's a disconnect. People don't fully understand it. And I, and I, and I love that we had the opportunity to, to have her voice, you know, and kind of similar to, you know, where Darlene was going with the Dylan Thomas poem and the, you know, rage, rage at the dying of the light, but that's it. You know, we can't, we cannot drop the ball and we cannot forget what is going on. These are, you know, it's a travesty what's happening at the Gaza Strip. And it's a travesty that it continues to happen. And, you know, as Noor put out there, eight to nine days of, of constant bombardment, you know, and it's, and when are we going to wake up? Because it's, you know, we see it happening there. We see bits of it happening in our country with, you know, the the war on, you know, people of color, the war on poor people, the war on homeless people. You know, it's it's time for the haves to really step up to the plate and recognize that if we if we don't come together, we all fail. I mean, that's that's it. And it and unfortunately, it takes the masses to recognize that it takes the people with privilege to recognize that because if they don't, then we are stuck in this cyclical cycle and that's, and that's fear. And that's where we're caught in right now. It feels like. Absolutely. And as we like, as we reckon with issues of racism, systemic racism here in America, those are the exact same issues that Palestinians are dealing with in Israel, you know, and even though people have stepped up and said, started to talk about seizing fire, that's fantastic. And that should be the first step. But that does not solve the problem, right? The problem is solved only and only when the occupation ends. And when Palestinian people in West Bank, and in Gaza, and in East Jerusalem, have equal rights to their land, and also just equal rights as other citizens. Um, So I very much um, appreciated all of our guests as well. And uh, Kamal said, you know, things that we can do to make this country a better place. And I think, you know, not supporting, um, not allowing our tax dollars to support human rights violations is definitely one of the first steps we can do to make this country a better place. So absolutely stand in solidarity with the struggle with Palestinian Absolutely. I agree. I agree to that wholeheartedly, lady. Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio of Utah. Executive producer, Laura Jones. I'm Rashawn Leak. I'm Tamrik of Shwili, and uh, I want to throw a quick plug in for next Saturday, May 22nd, Standing in Solidarity with Palestine and Columbia at 12.30 p.m. at the Wallace Bennett Federal Building, 125 South State Street in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's organized by PSL, Salt Lake Party for Socialism and Liberation. And Muna Omar is one of the ways that our listeners can uh, show their solidarity with Palestinian people. Rishtan, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, lady.